Welcome to Indie Cider, where we go beyond the game and meet the developers behind today's indie hits. This is your host, Ken Gagney, and welcome to Indie Cider episode number 22, where I play indie games and then interview the developers. This week I'm playing a game from Colorado-based indie studio Serenity Forge, and that game is Luna's Wandering Stars. It just came out in May of 2015 for PC and Mac via Steam, with iOS and Android versions to come, as well as an online mode and a level editor, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Luna's Wandering Stars is a physics-based puzzle game where you play a moon or an asteroid. You fling yourself around various celestial bodies trying to collect more matter, whether it is a regular moon or a golden moon, a regular asteroid or a golden asteroid. You control your trajectory and to various degrees, and the gravity of the planet will make you spin around and around in various loops and circles, so you have to get just the right force and trajectory to make the correct orbit to collect all the pieces that are in the sky. Every planet, though, as you make your tour of the solar system, will introduce new challenges. For example, when you are playing on the planet Earth, rather than control the trajectory of your asteroid, you actually control the planet Earth's gravitational well. By moving your mouse left and right, you can increase or decrease the gravity of the planet itself, and thus everything in its orbit will be affected correspondingly. You'll find mines that you need to avoid, these little red dots that if you bump into them, they explode. And you can't just orbit mindlessly, timelessly, because there is a timer that is counting down. And when it hits zero, if you've not collected enough mass, it's game over. Because that's your goal on each level, is to collect enough asteroids to have filled up your mass meter, basically. You can do this by collecting none, some, or all of the golden asteroids, and if you want to be a completionist and get 100%, you will collect every gold asteroid in every level. However, as long as you collect enough mass, you will advance to the next level, and after completing a dozen or so levels, you'll advance to the next planet, and thus new gameplay mechanics. Every time you win or lose, you receive a text prompt from an omniscient narrator, either egging you on, goading you on, congratulating you, somewhat begrudgingly. Think of it a little bit like GLaDOS from Portal, except a little bit more organic. You'll hear some interesting theories later on in this interview as to exactly whose voice it is you're hearing in the narrator's text. You do have infinite lives as you spin across the sky, featuring various celestial backgrounds. I actually tended not to notice them too much. There are, of course, stars and nebulae, but my focus was on getting that dang asteroid to go in the right direction. Sometimes I felt like I was more guessing than I was making a logical effort to get where I needed to go. But the game does play very quickly. If you lose, you just push spacebar and it resets the level and you try again. And as I said, you have infinite lives. So you can just keep firing your asteroid over and over and through trial and error or luck, finish the level unless you're smarter like me, in which case you can actually just figure these things out. This game was pitched to me by the company, Serenity Forge. I received a Facebook email with a Steam key. So I did not pay for this game. And I confess that when I first saw it, I thought it was too much like Angry Bird Space, which I admittedly have not played that much of. But I played Luna's Wandering Stars for only a few more minutes before I realized, no, this is in fact its own thing. It is using real-life physics, not that you necessarily have the opportunity to manipulate planetary orbits, but this is nonetheless an example of tangential learning, which you'll learn more about in this interview. And the snarky narrator kind of caught me off guard. There are no real characters that you can see in this game, no plot per se, and I just didn't expect them to take the time to add that additional layer. So I thought this was a game worth checking out, and I'm glad I did, and I had a great interview with the founder and CEO of Serenity Forge about 
having a mission statement that guides the design of your games and what it is you hope to contribute to gaming other than just a game that is fun and one which may or may not make you rich. Other topics include porting Unity games to the Wii U, finding the indie community in Boulder, Colorado, where they are located, and future games from Serenity Forge, which will mark their console debut later in 2015. If you want to find out more about Luna's Wandering Stars or their developer and their other games, a great place to start is their website, serenityforge.com. And of course, you can find more episodes of the IndieCider podcast at indiesider.net and follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash gamebits. Thanks for listening. Here's the interview. Today I'm chatting with Z Yang, the founder and CEO of Serenity Forge, developers of Luna's Wandering Stars. Hello, Z. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Good, good. Now, I went to the Serenity Forge website to take a look at what else you've done, and I see Loving Life came out in 2012, and that looks like it as far as prior to Luna's Wandering Stars, and yet Serenity Forge has been around for about eight years. So what has your team been working on in all that time? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a pretty good question. You know, honestly, looking back at it, I wasn't too sure what we were working on. Um, but, but in all seriousness, um, we, we kind of started the team back in 2008. I, I, I would say that's probably the earliest we've been uh, ever game developing. And uh, that was when we were still high school students. So uh, we got together, a bunch of high school friends, and we thought, hey, you know what? Let's go start a video game development team. And that's kind of how Serenity Forge got started. Uh, we worked on a few games in the beginning. We wanted to do some uh, fairly ambitious projects looking back at it. Um, you know, as high school students or early college students, it's going to be really hard for us to know the kind of scope that's realistic at the time. So nothing really came out of it besides, you know, experience and uh, more meeting more people in the industry. Until Loving Life happened, which was actually about my uh, near-fatal illness when I was 18 years old. And since then, we kind of set ourselves on a much more stronger path towards what we want to do with game development. And that's when we started developing Luna's Wandering Stars. Excellent. And Luna's Wandering Stars finally came out in May of 2015. And I'm wondering, what were some of your gameplay inspirations when you were starting to design this game? Because I've seen people compare it to games such as Portal, Angry Birds. What, what games were you looking at and saying, we want to do something like that, but better or different? There's definitely a lot of inspirations from Portal. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty spot on when it comes to the story and uh, kind of the feels of the game. When you play the game, you kind of feel like the narrator is kind of like Portal, uh, kind of like GLaDOS in a way. But uh, ultimately, games like Space Camp are actually what really inspired this uh, this game itself. Um, there's um, a physics simulation kind of like made for education here at uh, University of Colorado uh, when we were going to school. And I remember using that software for class, and I thought to myself, why, why is this so boring? <laughs> you know, I was like, physics, especially planetary physics, it should be a lot of fun. And uh, we thought, hey, you know, there's a lot of games like Angry Birds out there on your phone that you can just play and you waste a lot of time playing it. Why not add something a little bit more to uh, a simple puzzle game like that? So we kind of put the two, to, uh, two and two together. And that's how Luna's Wandering Stars came to be. You mentioned that Portal inspired some of the story. Certainly there's a narrator there who's mocking the player as you go along. Do all those teases get strung together into a plot as players go along? Uh, there's never been a specific plot because we wanted to keep it more vague and more open for players' interpretation. Uh, one of the things that we really wanted to do in the beginning is make it so that everything is a simulation, uh, everything is science. But then we thought, you know, that might, uh, we, we wanted, to, we want this game to be open to everyone. You know, it's a, it's an educational experience. There's a lot of tangential learning in the game. We don't want the story itself to cut off population just because of that. 
So, you know, we thought about how there are people who may be religious out there who would really want to learn more about planetary physics. And we don't want to just make it so that it's it's so close minded that, uh, you know, people like that won't be able to accept the game just because of a story. So that's why we kept the story very open. I've personally actually heard a lot of different interpretations. Uh, I've heard some uh, really, really, you know, fundamental religious people play this game and they really enjoyed it because they thought uh, the narration was uh, uh, words from God uh, himself and, you know, how that's uh, kind of guiding them learning on their learning path. Uh, you know, people who are uh, atheists would be able to play this game and realize, hey, you know, there's a, a really quirky narrator. I mean, a physics simulation. So ultimately, the story kind of worked in that benefit where uh, any type of audience is able to enjoy it. Wow, that's really fascinating. It never occurred to me to wonder who the narrator was. And if I had, I don't know that I would have come to the conclusion that it was a divine being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's actually a, uh, the, the game is actually used a fair, a fair amount in homeschool students. And a lot of homeschool students, for example, are, uh, you know, deeply religious and their parents wouldn't want their kids to be exposed to something uh, not not religious based in a way. And we don't want we don't want this. We don't want learning to be diluted because of that. So you've gotten feedback you, so, so that you know who is playing this game. You know, it's being popular in homeschools. Yeah, well, we, we definitely met a few people, um, especially in the homeschool industry, where uh, they talk about how. Uh, this game uh, is great for their kids, or we've talked to people who said that this game would would have been great when they were kids going through homeschool. So it's uh, different different reviews, definitely. Is that a population that you specifically targeted? You know, honestly, not really. Uh, when we were making the game, uh, we we didn't really target it, but ultimately it worked out in, in our benefit, I guess. Now, this game was initially funded on Kickstarter, where you asked for a modest $4,500. You received about $2,000 more than that, and your campaign very transparently breaks down what the costs were as far as music and licensing and the like, but still, $4,500 is not that much. For example, Yacht Club Games did a breakdown of how much money they needed to to do Shovel Knight, and it was, you know, multitudes of above and beyond what you required. Right, right. So what difference does $4,500 really make to an indie game? One of the things about Serenity Forge is that a lot of what we do is so driven by passion. I mean, I guess this sounds a little corny uh, nowadays, but it's so driven by passion that we're willing to kind of really sacrifice standard of living to make it come true. And uh, I think that's where uh, that number um, mostly came from. It also came from the fact that we expected the game to come out much earlier. Um, when we were running the Kickstarter, we were expecting the game to come out uh, about half a year from that point on. And then it ended up taking about a year and a half, I think, since then uh, to, to kind of finally finish the game. Um, so so that, I guess that's why that number was so low. is because we were expecting uh, a much shorter development time. But ultimately, once we were kind of near closer towards the finish line, we realized that we really needed to add a lot more polish uh, to make sure that the game is really, you know, for example, the art style. I don't know um, if you <laughs> looked too closely into our Kickstarter campaign, but um, we actually completely changed our game's art style since uh, since we launched the Kickstarter. In the beginning of the game, we all had like weird looking planet faces and we were trying to target a much younger audience. And then over time, we realized that the, the art style really turned people off. And ultimately, is the physics, is the puzzle exploration. That's the fun part of the game. We didn't want something else to dilute, dilute players' uh, experience because of it. In, also in the Kickstarter video, I noticed your quote, which is that Serenity Forge's vision is to change the players' lives by challenging the way they think. 
I think it's really important to have a mission statement like that because so many up-and-coming developers just want to break out into the market and they make a game with the sole goal of it being fun without really thinking about what that means or if there might be a larger mission that they might take into consideration. So I'm wondering, how did your mission statement influence the design of Luna's Wandering Stars? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this this kind of goes back to a, a, a while back when I was uh, really ill. Uh, when I was 18 years old, um, that's that's when I realized that the game industry, the game industry is pretty big. <laughs> there's there's a lot of players in the game industry, and a lot of people are trying to do the same thing. It's just trying to you know increase sales, try to get revenue. I mean, I'm not saying that we don't want that. I'm I'm saying that I feel like there's more you can do with the with the game medium overall. It's like um I remember there's a quote by John Mackey. I don't know if you know a uh, uh, large uh was oh, it's a it's a grocery store called Whole Foods, but the CEO of Whole Foods, John Mackey, he once said that uh, you know a, the co- a company to its profits is like a human to its food. Uh, for example, a, a person needs to eat in order to survive. That's you know that's a given. You can't really change that. But there's way more you can do with your life than just eat food. Just like how a company operates, you know, you need profit in order to operate as a company. But there's way more you can do as a company. Uh, you know, to benefit others, to benefit the world, to, you know, change society for the better, uh, than just try to raise as much profits as possible. So I guess that's kind of where this whole vision came from. Um, and, uh, Luna's Wandering Stars, I think it's, uh, I think it's a great way for us to add more educational value in the video game industry overall. Uh, you know, you compare the game to Angry Birds earlier. Uh, yeah, it is very similar to Angry Birds. Angry Birds is super addicting. When you play the game, it's hard to put it down. You always try to get the highest scores, whatever, or compete with your friends. Why not add something more to it, right? Uh, for example, Luna's Wandering Stars would have 100% real physics in the game. So when you're playing the game, you're kind of secretly learning physics, and uh, you, you wouldn't even know it in some instances. So ultimately, you're still playing the same kind of addicting puzzle game, but next time you go into your physics class in high school, uh, you're going to have a much more intuitive learning compared to other people who's never been exposed to it. So that, I guess that's where this kind of vision ties together with the game. You mentioned wanting to teach players physics, yet most players rarely have real-life opportunities to change planetary orbits. What is it you hope that they abstract from Luna's Wandering Stars? Yeah, so one of the things about the game is uh, it use, utilizes 100% real physics. So all of Newton's laws, Kepler's laws, you know, all of those things, F equals MA, it's all part of the game design. So when you, um, the game is actually, I, I know people, educators out there who actually use this game to do real simulations of how things would do. Um, for example, you know, you can assign mass numbers. We're working on the editor right now. It's not fully released, but in the editor, you can assign a certain mass, assign certain radius to each planet, each moon, and then just give it a force and uh, have it orbit the planet. And that would behave the same exact way it would in real life. Um, so, um, for players uh, to be exposed to something like this, it's, I feel like it's a very powerful tool in a way. It's not, it goes beyond of just you know, a simple puzzle game. Um, people are able to be a lot more interested in topics that they may not be exposed to otherwise. Uh, for example, middle school students might play this game and realize, hey, you know what? It's actually a lot of fun to be a, a rocket scientist or something like that because they're essentially learning rocket science. It's almost like uh, what Kerbal Space Program uh, is doing. 
and yet you're not hammering the players over the heads with terms like Newton and Kepler and, and F equals MA. So they may not be picking up on that or may not be aware of it. Right. And that's all, that's kind of where tangential learning comes into play. It's all about exposing them to new information as opposed to building an educational game, right? Um, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of the term educational game. No one likes it. We don't like it. Uh, ultimately, when we made the game, we, we were focusing on fun first and foremost. And then we thought about what we could do beyond fun. You did mention tangential learning in your Kickstarter, and I read up on it a little bit on Wikipedia. But for those who haven't, can you explain to us what that is and how it relates to Luna's Wandering Stars? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first time I was exposed to tangential learning was when I was in high school. I watched uh, Daniel Floyd's uh, video uh, on extra credits. Back then, it wasn't called extra credits. It was um, it was just his own personal videos at the time. And he talked about how tangential learning is such a powerful tool uh, in the game industry. It's basically like, for example, Final Fantasy VII, right? Uh, he gave the example of the main villain being uh, called Sephiroth. And, uh, you know, players, hardcore players will play that game and be really interested in, you know, what is a Sephiroth anyways? And they would Google Sephiroth and they'd come across the word Sephiroth, which is some kind of a, you know, ritual. Uh, I, I can't quite recall what it was. It was like an alchemy thing. So, so ultimately, when you're playing games, like, for example, when you watch the movie 300, you might go Google, you know, a 300 and you'll find the ba- battle with Thermopylae and all that stuff. But just through tangential learning alone, it's, it's you're, you're being exposed to something as opposed to being educated. Uh, and by piquing your interest, you're able to seek out more information and you're learning beyond that. So, so I guess that's kind of how I see tangential learning. I see. So this game might be more of a complement in a physics classroom where the students are learning about these things and your program sh- demonstrates how they might be applied. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's, you know, fun first and foremost. It's almost like, uh, you know, it's, there's more to it than learning and there's more to it than fun. It's, it's both together. Now, you mentioned that you're working on a level editor, and when I boot up the game, it also says there's an online mode coming soon. What are those going to look like, and when can we get our hands on them? Yeah, uh, the level editor um, is simply you get to make your own levels. Uh, it's very intuitive, no programming knowledge required. You just click and drag planets and put them into orbit, and you can, you can use any of the powers that's currently in the game. Uh, and then we're also going to implement online, where you get to share these levels with people online, rate them, play them. We'll have you know, handpick some levels, these are the levels today, and stuff like that. It's uh, just to kind of motivate players to kind of create their own cool-looking uh, planetary physics puzzles. I see. So there's going to be almost sort of like an online marketplace where people can exchange levels. It's not that they're going to be playing against each other or simultaneous multiplayer. It's more of a free exchange of ideas. Right, right, exactly. It's uh, kind of like the, I think Super Smash Brothers had something like that, where you get to build your own levels and share online. Yeah, another game featured on this podcast, Fight the Dragon, has also been very, right. yep, very, they've been very community-oriented. They've had a lot of levels like that. Yeah, yeah. Also on the Kickstarter, you uh, mentioned a $5,000 stretch goal for iOS and Android. Those are also coming, as are the level editor and online mode. When can we see those mobile versions? Yeah, so this game, looking at this game, it's pretty apparent that it feels like it should be a game that's on the mobile devices, especially on something like the iPad. Uh, that's something that we've been working towards uh, for a little bit, and we, we tried it out. It's, it's, it became much more difficult than we expected, uh, and now that we finally have the game out on Steam, we're going to be able to kind of tackle it a lot more hands-on. I think, um, what was it, Word of Goo, when it first came out, it took them three years? I think it was three or four years until they finally uh, were able to port it onto mobile devices like the iPad. Um, I don't think it'll take us that long, 
but it might. I definitely. I'm. I'm looking at a one to two year kind of time span, depending on our uh, our next projects, because we do have a lot of other stuff lined up. Once Luna's Wandering Stars hits the mobile devices, it'll be available for Mac, Windows, iOS, and Android. But then Pixel Galaxy, slated to come out late summer 2015, is scheduled for Windows, Mac, Wii U, and other consoles. And then next year, you have the King's Bird, which is PC, Mac, Xbox One, Wii U, and other consoles. So if I understand correctly, those two upcoming games will mark Serenity Forge's console debut. Does this denote a change in development strategy or platform launches for your company? Um, uh, y- yes and, and no <laughs> in certainly different ways. Um, we're Unity developers, so all of the games that we make are pretty much in Unity, except for the Kingsbird, which is actually made in Game Maker, uh, surprisingly enough. Um, so, so uh, it's pretty easy in general uh, to, uh, at least for me, to say that uh, it's pretty simple for us to port all these games onto different platforms, uh, especially when it comes to the Xbox One and the PS4. You know, these are very powerful consoles that's able to pretty much run anything that we're doing on the PC anyways. Um, when it comes to the Wii U, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. It's always been a little bit difficult for us. Um, and ultimately, it's always a toss-up for us, you know, whether or not we want to port it all together at the same time, or do we want to maybe release it on the Xbox One and the PC before the other consoles, just because it's a lot easier and it would be able to release a few months earlier. You know, that's that's kind of hard to say. But ultimately, we do want to expand our uh, our development into consoles uh, and you know, and uh, mobile uh, in our certain directions, obviously. But um, it's it's going to be hard for us to kind of see that going forward. Uh, just exactly what what we want to do, as opposed to what we can do with our limited uh, resources. But bringing Luna's Wandering Stars to console, that's not in the in the cards. Um, Luna's Wandering Stars is actually one of the first consoles that we worked with is the Wii U, and we we've always planned for Luna's Wandering Stars to be on the Wii U uh, because of the touchpad. Uh, unfortunately, the gameplay itself doesn't really support uh, something like a controller at all. So we need, we kind of need that touchpad, or we need that uh, iPad, you know, the human touch interface for this game to even really make any sense to play. Uh, unfortunately, the Wii U hardware is uh, it's pretty hard, it's pretty difficult to work with. Um, it's it's limited in uh, in capabilities, and we're gonna have to remake the whole game essentially if we want to port it to Wii U. So once we realize that it's gonna, uh, it's been we've been kind of quiet about the whole thing, and we're not too sure when it'll actually uh, be possible for us to port the whole thing. Is that because the Wii U doesn't play well with Unity? Yeah, I guess simply put, yeah, you can say that uh, the, the Unity the Unity um, development. I don't think it's very easy for Unity to hand over the graphics portion of the programming uh, to the Wii U console. Uh, the Wii U console requires a, a different kind of engine, so everything ends up running on the CPU instead of the GPU, which is why everything is a lot more uh, hard to uh, harder to work with, essentially. Because for those who haven't worked with either Unity or the Wii U, I can imagine them naively assuming that you're building the game in Unity, and then you just go to the export menu, and you click the console <laughs> you want, and you're done. <laughs> yes. Yep, yep, that's what we thought in the beginning. Oh, well. So I was looking at your website, and I saw that you've also done, in addition to your own game, some contract work for outside firms such as the IGDA and Goodwill. How do those contract gigs advance Serenity Forge's mission of challenging the way people think? You know, a lot of the contract work that we do is it's very, very much so aligned to what we believe in as a team. In fact, I don't think any of our contracts don't uh, perfectly align with our vision. Uh, you know, uh, 
one of the examples I can give you is actually uh, right now they're doing a rebranding of their company. It's called Wobble Fun, uh, and, and Relevant Play is another one. And uh, so basically, what they're doing is they're working with this new technology, uh, this infrared technology, where you can put this infrared into something like a Play-Doh, and then this infrared would be seen by this special type of camera, while the rest of the world would not be seen by this camera. So essentially, now you're building a game controller out of Play-Doh, and you can build your own kind of air- airplanes or animals out of Play-Doh and do whatever you want. And then little kids can use this uh, new technology to port it in, to put it into the game and then play it in front of the camera with you know with the with their special technology. Something like that has uh, immense educational value. It has immense tangential learning uh, in all sorts of different things, depending on the game that we develop. And uh, ultimately, you know, th- those are the kind of things that we always look for when we work with contract uh, contracting. So this isn't sort of a necessary evil you do to pay the bills while working on your own stuff. I mean, necessary evil. I guess you can say yes in a way where it's like, oh, it would be great if we can all just keep on making our own things. Yeah. But you know, that's not that's not how the world works. We're young too. We're you know just graduates from uh, college, and we want to learn more about what's out there in the world. And being in Colorado, it's uh, sometimes it's it's a little hard to build that network. So you know, this is a, another way, another channel, almost I would say, for us to learn more about what's going on in the world, build more connections, and ultimately help everything out. Uh, you know, in terms of development, the things that we work on, we're we're quite proud of. I want to talk to you a little bit about the geography of your company because I briefly lived in Denver and I know that there's a lot of telecommuters and co-working spaces, especially along the Pearl Street Mall and then right down the road yeah. you have Gun Barrel and then there's a lot of tech companies out there. Right, right. And I remember about three years ago, I happened to notice that there were like three different Kickstarters to reboot the classic computer game Mule and all three were <laughs> either in Boulder or Denver. Alpha Colony by uh, uh, Christopher Williamson, right? That's one of them, yeah. Yeah. What is the game development scene like in Boulder? It sounds like you are in pretty good company. Uh, it's hard to say, you know. Um, after you go to San Francisco for GDC, you just realize that th- there are much better places out there. For example, the Canadian government actually subsidizes game developers. They give them benefits. Um, and that's just something that you're never gonna, you're never going to get in America. Where, where you know people are actually trying to ban video games from some from uh, families and try to raise taxes on games. So um, being in Colorado, it, it's a pretty small scene. Ultimately, I think we're a few hundred people at the very largest. Um, there's, I think, I would say there are two large companies in Colorado. One with around 100 people, the other one is 50 people, and everyone else is pretty much just indies. Uh, you know, I would not be surprised if we were like the third or fourth largest team in Colorado. Uh, just because we have like 10 people here. Um, so it's, it's, it's really good in the sense that there are a lot of startups here. Uh, the startup community is amazing. There's a lot of tech companies. The venture capital uh, kind of a community is great too. You can always just go out and reach, reach out to people to find, support that you, find the support that you need. But in terms of video game development, it's, it's a little lacking. And uh, we, we really do wish that our community is a little stronger. Which is what we do uh, a lot of our times. We actually dedicate a lot of our times to try to build a community. We work with uh, local educators to try to build more um, video game development uh, programs in their schools. Uh, for example, I'm on the board of a uh, local micro college called the Vinci Institute, and they have a course on how to make video games in Unity. It's a Unity game development. 
So, you know, those are the things that we're trying to do to get more involved, to try to build the community stronger here in Colorado for the greater and, you know, long run. Here in Boston, we are just bursting at the seams with indie groups and they collaborate very much. They open, uh, they have these monthly meetups that they get together and all the different indie developers just share their best practices, show off what they're working on. Is there any sort of a monthly Boulder indie meetup? Yeah, we actually have a bunch of different meetups. It's not necessarily in Boulder, but it's usually around the area. There are the people meet in Denver once in a while. People meet in Fort Collins once in a while. Uh, Lafayette, Louisville. Uh, people, you know, go to Panera Bread and grab just grab something to drink or grab a sandwich and sit down and chat. Uh, there's quite a bit of those uh, around the area. It's just, uh, again, it's mostly, you know, larger companies would never participate in these events. It's mostly just very small indie teams who do this uh, more more or less as a hobby at, at best. And uh, it's um, you know, we 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 uh, we, we definitely try to try our best to try to grow this community <laughs> going forward. One of the challenges that any small indie group has, whether they're in Boston or Boulder, is getting noticed, getting seen and marketing. And that could be a topic for a whole other podcast. But I want to know just briefly, what is your strategy to get Serenity Forge noticed? I mean, your company's been around for a while and you have a few games under your belt. You're looking to double your catalog in the next year and you're going to want to get those games out there. So how do you get noticed as a small independent game studio? You know, that's that's a really good question. Um, I feel like the easy answer would be, oh, just go networking, meet the right people, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's usually the answer that you hear. And that's, that's probably something that I would recommend normally. But, you know, ultimately, I feel like what really matters at the end of the day is to build a good game, right? It, it, you know, getting noticed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, there's a lot of things you can do to go out there and try to network and try to build connections to try to get noticed. But if you if you build a good game, one person's going to play it and he's going to recommend it to 10, 10 of his friends. And then those 10 friends will recommend it to 10 of their friends. And ultimately, you don't need to go around and try to go do marketing anymore, right? It's um, I feel like a lot of the early, I feel like a lot of the indie scene, a lot of the video game development scene in general don't realize that. It's... um. Building high quality games, building games that really enhance players' lives and really give back to them uh, something after uh, after they're done playing. I feel like that's the most important part to act, to game marketing. And uh, I think a lot of people feel like, oh, just because you're indie, you don't have the money like Microsoft to kind of you know, throw money at marketing until it works kind of strategy. Uh, indie games can't succeed. Well, I don't think that's quite true. I think ultimately it's it, it comes down to your vision and what you want to do with your games and oh you're instead of building a game for yourself and you know oh great i built this game that i really like i think it's way more important to think about building a game that the community would like building a game that fans would like building a game that would actually enhance people's lives at the end of the day so i don't know if that's the answer you're kind of looking for but that's just kind of something that i i've been thinking about no it's great to be thinking about the larger implications of your game and who's going to enjoy it but you said don't make a game just for yourself i think it's also important to make a game that you also like if you can't, oh, yeah. if you can't see yourself playing your own game then you've done something wrong yeah of course of course i mean that that that, that wasn't exactly what i meant i guess uh it's, it's like you know when you're involved in the scene for so long you you meet uh, developers who kind of have, you know, the pipe dream of, oh, if I build this awesome MMORPG by myself in the next, you know, tw two months, then it'll be amazing because I just believe that, you know, after working at it for a few, for a few years now, you know, in the beginning, we did, we did think that way. 
And then nowadays, it's a lot more clear to us that it's more important to to kind of give back with the time that you have. No, I think that's an excellent philosophy, and I think it, I hope that it serves you very well with Luna's Wandering Stars and with all the other games that are coming out. Luna's Wandering Stars can be found on your website at serenityforge.com and on Twitter and Facebook. Your company is Serenity Forge. Is there anywhere else that we should be looking for you or your team online? Um, no, that's pretty much it. I mean, I have my own Twitter account as well. It's just uh, at Jinghua Yang, which is my full name. Which hard, super hard to spell. I don't know if you care. <laughs> I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Excellent. And any any parting shots you want to leave with our listeners with? Re- re- really, ultimately, I, I feel like the game industry is it's growing. There's a lot of uh, beauty in the game medium itself. I, I feel like I feel like our medium is still in its infancy, and I'm really excited to see where it's going to go in the future. I feel like I really do urge all the game developers out there to uh, think about, you know, the kind of learning or the kind of meaningful artistic experiences you can put into your game, as opposed to just making more clones that seem to work business-wise. I mean, yeah, business is great, but again, it's uh, I feel like there's more you can do with uh, just just profit <laughs> as a business. So I guess that's kind of my final thought. Yeah, I get a lot of pitches to have various games on this show, and Luna's Wandering Stars stood out because there are so many I get that are either Angry Birds or Flappy Bird clones, and I spend a few minutes with Luna's Wandering Stars, and I'm like, no, this is its own thing. They're doing something different here. I like that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. This has been Indie Cider, a Game Bits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at IndieCider.net. Indie